Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John uh, chapter 3, verse 22. Uh, just one quick announcement that I do have for us. Uh, don't forget we're collecting Thanksgiving baskets. And so for more information of the Thanksgiving baskets, you can go to the Info Center uh, to sign up and then also to get a little sheet of what all is included in a Thanksgiving basket. And don't forget, um, right after the service, uh, we will have our membership class, and that's going to be in the cafe area um, and so once we uh, everybody leaves and you gather all your kids we'll meet in there have some lunch together and then talk about our church um, but if you have your bibles let's turn to john john chapter 322 as we're continuing our series through the gospel of john and so in the the gospel of, of john john is trying to show us that jesus is the messiah that jesus is the son of god and the way he does it is by showing us how jesus revealed his glory and how jesus received glory from the Father. And the reason why he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God is not just to give us some useless information, but rather invite us in so that we may believe and have life in his name. Now, in the Gospel of John, where we are, as we entered into the public ministry of Jesus, he's showing us how Jesus revealed his glory. And he showed us first how Jesus provides the new wine that surpasses the old purification system. That kind of makes the old purification system obsolete. He showed us that Jesus is the new and better high priest who mediates for his people and keeps the temple clean. How he is the new temple where now God manifests himself and where sinners meet with a holy God. He is the new and better sacrifice that takes care of our sins once and for all. And even in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus showed Nicodemus how he's the fulfillment of the prophecy, how he is the one providing new birth, providing regeneration by him hanging on the cross, and all who look to him will be saved. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 3, John shifts our attention back to that of John the Baptist. And he's showing us how John the Baptist's life sought to point all of his attention, all of his life ultimately to Jesus. And so what we're going to see is how Jesus surpasses that of John the Baptist in any baptism or ritual purification that he presented, that Jesus is ultimately better. But what I want us to do is as we look at the life of John the Baptist, I think there's a lot we can learn uh, from his words and his examples and then apply it to our lives as we look at the supremacy of Christ. So let's look at John chapter 3, verse 22, and just set the scene. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. So, so let's set the scene here. So again, John uses this phrase after this. He's used this phrase many times. And, and the reason why he uses this phrase is this phrase is a transition. He's transitioning uh, from Jesus' uh, conversation to Nicodemus to now being in the Judean countryside where they are uh, where he's spending time with his disciples and baptizing people. So in other words, this after this does not indicate the amount of time that has passed. All we know is this being transitioned. He was in Jerusalem. That was the urban area of Judea. And now he's in the rural side of Judea in the countryside. 
And John also reminds us, remember, this took place before John the Baptist was thrown in prison. And it's an interesting statement because you're wondering, okay, why in the world is he giving us this detail? And I think the reason why he's doing that is because John's aware of all the other Gospels. He's read all the other Gospels, and he doesn't want his readers to have any confusion with the timeline. Because remember, all the other Gospels, when they talk about Jesus' ministry, they do not mention Jesus' ministry in Judea. They go from the temptation into the wilderness to the starting of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And so you, you see this in, in Mark 1.14, Matthew 4.12, Luke 4.14, places his opening ministry in Galilee, not in Judea. And his Galilean ministry started after John was thrown in jail. And because he understands these other Gospels have released and he doesn't want his readers to be confused, nor does he want to create any discreditability of him being the author and maybe saying, hey, you're, you're kind of lying. There's a couple of discrepancies in your timeline. He's saying, remember, this ministry took place in Judea before John was thrown into prison. The Galilean ministry started after John was thrown in prison, which the other Gospels does not record for us. So the scene is set. Everybody understands. Now the dispute arose. Look at verse uh, 25. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So an argument develops between John the Baptist's disciples and a certain Jew. In some of your translations, they say plural Jews. And the argument was a matter of ceremonial washing. So more than likely, a debate arose not on the merits of baptism so in other words these this jew wasn't saying hey you and your disciples have no right to baptize anybody and jesus and his disciples have no right to baptize anybody nor did the jews say you know what jesus's baptism is better than your baptism it had nothing to do with it had everything to do with ritual purification because there was a group of certain Jews that believed that every time you go and wash yourself in cold water, that is richly purifying yourself. So more than likely, and this is me just kind of speculating, the debate maybe arose because as the numbers for John the Baptist with their baptism was diminishing because everybody in a sense was going to Jesus to be baptized by him and his disciples, this Jew kind of comes along and looks at everybody and say, you know you don't need to get baptized by these people. You can just go and wash yourself. Just get in the water, wash yourself, and you'll be richly, richly pure. And so these disciples, their numbers are already diminishing because they're not baptizing as many people as they used to. Everybody, in a sense, is going to Jesus, and now they're arguing with this, with this Jewish guy saying, no, you can't wash yourself by yourself. You need somebody else to help you perform this ceremony. And so we can see how their words are kind of filled with envy, jealousy, and a little bit resentment as they come to John the Baptist. And look at verse 26 again. They says this, So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, and who was with you across the Jordan, a.k.a. Jesus, he's baptizing, 
And look at the exaggeration. And everyone is going to him. You can see how their words are kind of filled with a little bit of jealousy and resentment. They're over-exaggerating. Not everybody, because they're still baptizing. But in their minds, they're so jealous, they're saying, everybody is going to him. So in a sense, what they're telling John the Baptist is, Jesus is stealing all of our people. And if we don't watch it, we're not going to have any ministry left. We're not going to be able to baptize anybody because everybody is going to Jesus. We need to do something about it. Now, this is really interesting because John the Baptist's disciples knew their original mission and purpose. But over time, they started to get distracted they started to forget why they are with John the Baptist because of what John the Baptist's original mission and purpose was. As the spotlight or the limelight started shifting off of John and now onto Jesus, which was their very purpose, all of a sudden they forgot. They got distracted. Because again, what was John the Baptist's original mission? He came to do what? to prepare the way for the Lord. He came to preach that the kingdom of God is near. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins because one who is greater is coming. His job was to point to the spotless lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And John's disciples knew this mission and they wanted to help John accomplish this purpose. But then all of a sudden they got upset because... Where's everybody going? Going to Jesus. Where's everybody supposed to go? To Jesus. What was their purpose? To point everybody to Jesus. And I think there's a little bit of application here. Is that even though they understood their original mission and purpose, they in a sense forgot. They got distracted. And so many times that's for us. We know the church's original mission and purpose. But what happens in our culture, what happens with the screaming voices around us, we start to forget of why we're here, what we're doing. Like, what's the mission that that, that King Jesus gave us? Go and make disciples. And what happens is we start off with making disciples, but then as problems arose around us, as, as things are not working out the way they're wor- supposed to be working out, we in a sense get distracted and we forget what we're supposed to be doing. We get distracted by all the things going on in our world, all the problems that we in a sense need to solve. And is that our mission purpose? We're not here to solve anything. What are we here to do? To make disciples and point to Jesus Christ. And so... These disciples got distracted. And I just love how John reminds them of their original mission and purpose. Look at verse 27. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must 
decrease. So in John's response, it really reveals the heart of his ministry and his own heart. One of the things that John understood is that God's sovereignty stand behind all of human claims. For we don't have anything. But everything we do have comes from where? It's been given to us by God. Even Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Like that question does not mean if you don't have anything, just simply ask God and he's going to give it to you. But what that question is meaning is everything that you do have, where did that come from? That they ultimately came from God. Like you have nothing. He gave you everything. And so this is even John's point. That all the gifts we have received ultimately comes from God, even our roles, even our callings and our purposes in a particular ministry. Now, before we move on, I, I want you to show, uh, to show you, like, hypothetically, if John did not believe it. L let's say this. If John the Baptist, in a sense, wished he was somebody else, in a sense, wished he had maybe a greater calling or a greater purpose, not only would that be covetedness, but it would ultimately take away from what God had given him. And what we have to understand is deep discontent over God's wise and sovereign distribution of roles and things not only displays unbelief, but at worst is a form of arrogance that wants to be God and stands over and against God. Like, let that just sink in here. Because in our culture, we are constantly wanting more. We're constantly coveting other people's things or other people's personalities or looks or purposes or callings or missions. We're never content with where we are. And if John the Baptist was not happy with the calling that the Lord has placed, not only is that coveting, but it also displays unbelief in a sense saying, God, I don't think you're good. I don't think you're sovereign. And then at worst, it's also an arrogance because you know more than God. You believe you know how better to distribute gifts than God does. But that's not what John says. The first thing that John reminds his disciples, because his disciples are coveting. His disciples want a better purpose, a greater role. And he reminds his disciples, hey, 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 your role, your purpose, your ministry was given to you by God. And John was entirely content with this. He walked in such deep humility, understanding that everything he has comes from God. Like, think about this. Everything you have comes from God. Your assigned gender by the Creator comes from God. Your role and purpose comes from God. The way you look your personality, what you own, your house, your clothes, your cars, your children, your family, this church, this building, this carpet, these chairs, everything comes from where? It comes ultimately from God. You have nothing. 
everything you have, you've received, because it comes from a good and sovereign God. And we need to understand this. Because when we don't, we're going to constantly look around wishing we had more. We're never going to be content. We're never going to be able to walk like John in deep humility and just being grateful for the little things we've received, knowing it comes from God. This is why even Jesus says about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, verse 11, he says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But then he says this verse that's kind of weird at the end. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So in a sense, is what makes John the Baptist so great? Because he got a lot of stuff. He had huge responsibility. No, because he walked in such great humility, understanding everything he has comes from God. And you know who would be greater than John the Baptist? Someone who's received even less and walked in even greater humility which I don't know if there are anybody technically, but this is what that verse means. And so this is what we have to understand. This is the attitude of our heart. Everything we have comes from God, that God in his sovereignty and his goodness gives us everything that we need. He assigns to us specific roles and purposes, and we ought to walk in humility, believing and trusting that God is sovereign and that God is good. And this is what he reminds his disciples. The second thing he does, he points to his disciples to Jesus and he reminds them of the calling that they have received. He says, he says look, I've told you, I'm not the Messiah. I am, in a sense, and he uses this parable kind of language. He says, I am a friend of the groom. In our language, I am the best man. Now, the best man or the friend of the groom in the ancient Judean wedding organized the details and even presided over the wedding in a little bit. His greatest joy was to make sure that this wedding celebration went unhindered without a problem, knowing that his role, his greatest joy is to see the bride and the groom be unified. And when that happens, his joy is made complete. And this is what John is saying. And this language of, of wedding was a very common language because in the Old Testament, God referred to his people as the bride. In the New Testament, he refers to his people as the bride. We are the bride of Christ. And by John using this language, he's reminding them, look, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. The glory is not mine. My job is not to build a following. My job is not to be united to the bride. But rather, my job is to point to all who would listen and hear and look to the one who is the groom so that they can be the bride. And then in verse 30, he basically just summarizes everything. He says, look at verse 30. If you want to make marks in your Bible, I would highlight this verse. Memorize it's very easy. He must increase, but I must decrease this should be the anthem we live out this should be in a sense the cry of a disciple and so if you're taking notes you can write this down he must increase and i must decrease he must increase and i must decrease this should be the anthem of our lives this should be the cry of a disciple this is a reminder to all of us. It's not about you. It's about the king. 
And what is your role? What must you do? Decrease so he can increase. And here's the reality. Jesus will not be able to increase as you're increasing. If you want Jesus to increase in your life, the only way to see that happen is you decreasing. In other words, what that means is to die to self, to surrender, to put to death your desires, to be content with where God has you to be, saying it's not about me, it's not about my preferences, it's not about my comfort, it's not about what I like or dislike. He must increase, and for him to increase in my life, I must decrease. Now, as we move to the next section of our text, this ends the conversation with John the Baptist and his disciples. And the author, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, one of the the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus, he's reflecting back, and now he's going to provide commentary on this conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. And what he's going to do, he's going to explain to his readers, that's us, why Jesus must increase and why we must decrease. Because it's easy for us to read this and say, okay, yeah, he must increase, I must decrease. But why? John's like, I'm glad you're asking. Read my commentary. Let me show you why Jesus is greater. Let's look at verse 31. It says this. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from the earth is earthly and speak in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. So if you're taking notes, the first reason why Jesus is greater is this, that Jesus alone comes from above and has authority over all. Jesus alone comes from above and has authority over all. Where does Jesus come from? Comes from heaven. Because he comes from heaven, he has authority over all. And then, and then John's point is, where does John the Baptist come from? Where do we come from? Do we come from heaven? No. We come from the earth. We speak of earthly things. Now, what he means by us coming from the earth and speaking earthly things, he has nothing to do with our sinfulness, but has everything to do with our limitations and our finitude. Like, our minds, no matter how brilliant we think we are, no matter the technological advancement or the scientific advancement, our minds are limited in what we can comprehend. We are finite beings. And what the Apostle John is saying is this. We are finite beings. We are limited in our understanding. This is why we must decrease. But he, on the other hand, must increase. Why? Because where does he come from? He comes from heaven. And because he comes from heaven and because he's above all, he has authority over everything. The second reason, if, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus spoke from observation and not from theory. So in other words, not does, only does he come from above and he has authority over all, but the reason why he's speaking with such authority is because he is speaking from observation, not from theory. He is speaking of what he has seen and heard because where does he come from? 
He comes from the throne room of God. The reason why he can speak on such authority about heavenly things because he himself comes from heaven. This is even why he tells Nicodemus uh, of why he can speak with such authority. Look at uh, John chapter 3, verse 11. He says, Jesus says this to Nicodemus, Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Verse 13 is the important verse. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, why can Jesus speak about heavenly things with such authority? Why, can, why is he speaking from observation and not from theory? Because he comes from heaven. He comes from the throne room of God. Let's read for, uh, verse 33. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's word since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So the third reason why Jesus is greater, not only is he alone from heaven as authority over all, not only does he speak from observation, not theory, but also if you're taking notes, Jesus was sent by the Father to speak the words of God. He was sent by the Father to speak the words of God. And what John, in a sense, is saying, he's saying, by accepting Jesus' testimony as what, as what Jesus has seen and heard, the believer certifies that God is truthful. Not that Jesus is truthful, but that God is truthful. For the one whom God had sent speaks the very words of God. So in a sense, Jesus so completely does all that God says and does and only does what God says and does that to believe Jesus is to believe God and not to believe Jesus is to call God a liar. For the very words that Jesus speaks is not his own words, but the words of God. And think about this. Jesus' words are far greater than any person, any prophet, even greater than John the Baptist. Why? Let's look at the text again. Look at verse 34. Why is Jesus' words far greater? For the one whom God sends speaks God's word, since he gives the Spirit without measure. So, so think about this. Throughout the Bible time, there are men and women who would speak on behalf of God. They were commissioned by God. They were sent by God. They were prophets. And part of uh, the authority that they've had was they received a measure of the Spirit to accomplish their assigned task and role. So when you have the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even the minor prophets, they were filled with the Spirit of God to accomplish their purpose to speak on behalf of God. They received a measure of the Holy Spirit. But why is Jesus more than just speaking on behalf of God? Why is Jesus' words the words of God? Because did he receive the, the Spirit with measure? With a limit? No, what does the text say? 
the text says, since he gives the Spirit without measure. In a sense, Jesus receives the Spirit without a limit. All the other prophets received it with a measure, but Jesus, without measure, without limit. Which even leads us to the fourth reason of why Jesus is greater. Look, look at verse 35 again. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. So the fourth reason of why Jesus is greater, not, not only because He comes from above and has authority over all, not only because He speaks from observation, not theory, because He was sent by the Father, He speaks the words of God, He received the Spirit without measure, but also the last reason if you're taking notes is because the, father, the Father's love had caused Him to give the Son complete authority to execute His purpose. The Father's love for the Son had caused him to give his Son complete authority to execute his purpose. This is what John is saying. The Father loves the Son and has given all, thing into, all things into his hands. And though it is the Father who sends the Son, and though it is the Son who obeys the Father, and not the Father obeying the Son, and not the Father being sent by the Son, but the Father sending the Son, the Son obeying the Father, this relationship is a relationship of love. For the Father loved the Son. The Father had given the Spirit without measure and has placed everything in His hands. So much so, all these qualities make Jesus so superior in every way, more superior than John the Baptist. Because not only is he the messenger of God, but he's also the object of our faith. Think about this. When the prophets spoke on God's behalf, who did they point to? They pointed to God, the triune God. But when Jesus is speaking the very words of God, who's he pointing to? He's pointing to himself. He's pointing to saying, I should be the object of your faith. And this is why in verse 36, uh, this is why, why, how John closes everything as he wraps up uh, chapter 3. He says this, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And so John just wraps it up by reminding us of the message of the gospel. Jesus is not just the messenger of God, but Jesus reveals the object of faith. All who believe in this object, the Son of Man, receives eternal life. And those who reject it, the wrath of God remains on him. And this is what we have to understand with this wrath. This wrath is not some sudden impulsive outburst or temper that God loses. God is not like, you know what, you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. Oh, you've reached the limit. Now I'm just going to be outburst of wrath on you. But rather the wrath is God's displeasure of sin. And when you're sinning, his displeasure, his wrath remains on you. It's not all of a sudden coming on you because you've sinned too much, but rather it remains on you because of his displeasure of sin. And yet he invites you in to say, look at this son 
Look at the Savior. Make him your object of faith. But if you continue to look to self, you will remain under wrath. Like, and even think about what, what, what that means for us. The only way for us to decrease is for us to be no longer the object of our own faith. Here's why people do not believe in Jesus. Not because they don't believe he doesn't exist or there's no evidence. Because they're the object of their own faith. I don't need him. I can save myself. I am far more superior than he. He has nothing to offer compared to what I can offer myself. And when John the Baptist is saying, you must decrease and he must increase, John the Apostle is saying, yeah, you have to stop looking to self, stop being the own object of your faith and make Jesus the object of your faith because he is far more superior than you could ever be. So, so, so let's wrap it up here and talk a little bit of application and then we get to the table here. I, I think the first thing is w- we can be reminded of John the Baptist's disciples because I think many of us can, can relate to John the Baptist's disciples where we, where we want kind of have a tendency to want our own glory. We want to build our own name our own fame, our own following. But the purpose of a Christian is not to build their own name, their own fame, their own following, but rather is to magnify Jesus. And we, just like John the Baptist, must stop pointing others to self must even stop pointing ourself to self, but we must ultimately point to Jesus. He must increase and we must decrease. In other words, there is no way Christ can increase in your life as long as you look to self and you continue to increase. The only way for Christ to increase in your life is you to decrease. And what does that look like for you as a believer? looks like dying to self. It looks like surrendering your life, walking in humility, admitting, confessing, I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I'm not the solution to the problem. I'm actually part of the problem. I must decrease so that Christ can increase. I think another thing we we can learn is this, like we are reminded not to be following people and be so loyal to people because what's going to happen? They're going to disappoint you. And yet what John is showing us is, hey, he said, look, Christ is so much more superior. Like where does John the Baptist come from? He comes from the earth. He speak about earthly things. In other words, he's saying like, the only thing that John the Baptist can do is he can talk about repentance and he can talk about the kingdom of God. But he cannot grant you new birth. 
He cannot make you new. He cannot get you in the kingdom of God because he is from earth. Why follow him? Follow Christ because what can he do? He can make you new. He can regenerate you. He can bring you into the kingdom of God. Why? Because he comes from the throne room of the kingdom of God. And so for us, like we need to follow Christ. And if we're following earthly people, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You better make sure that they're following Christ as you're following them. Because at the end of the day, you have to follow Christ. And I think the last thing is our, our, our lives, we, our lives should revolve around making him known, seeking his glory. As we humble ourselves, as we come into worship the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Our lives should orient around that. I, I want to leave us with this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says this, I just love this. He says, we can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high a thoughts about Christ. We can never love him too much, trust him too much, lay too much weight upon him, speak too highly in his praise. For he is worthy of all the honor that we can give him. All will, he will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that he is all in our hearts on earth. Like, just, just think about this for a moment. Let, let this sink in. You can never praise him too much or speak too highly of him. Because even in your highest speaking, you will still fall, fall short of who he really is. There is not a burden or a problem that you cannot place on him that's too heavy for him. Think about all the issues our world is going through. Sex trafficking poverty, injustices. I think by now we've realized we can't carry this burden. But who can we place that burden on? Christ. There's not a problem that you are struggling with that you cannot put on Christ, and Christ says, oh, this is too heavy for me. No. J.C. Ross says, because he will be all in heaven. Let us make sure that everything on earth and our hearts is placed on him and making all of him in earth. Let me pray for us and then we get to sit at the table. Our Holy Father, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, I thank you that you have sent your son. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that you come from heaven and you are above all things that you speak from observation and not from theory. That when you speak, you speak the very words of God because you have received the Spirit without limit. And I am so grateful, God, for this triune love you have, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Son obeying the Father, doing the will of the Father, and because of the Father's love for the Son, Everything has been given to him, all authority, and he executes his authority and his purposes. Lord, my prayer for us is that can we just marvel at the superiority of Christ? Can we just realize how we must decrease so that he can increase? 
can you in this moment just show us how limited and how finite we are and how big and powerful and awesome you are King Jesus can we understand why we can decrease because you are far greater than we can ever imagine before we sit at the table if there's somebody in here that doesn't believe in Jesus that haven't surrendered their life to Jesus I just want to make sure that that invite goes out to you and I really think and believe that part of the reason why you have a hard time to trust in Jesus to believe in him to surrender to him is because you're too busy to looking to self you're the object of your faith and you're thinking I must do better I must increase and the only way where that's going to lead is wrath because what you're doing is you're standing over and against God and tell God you're not God I am it's not going to end well and what John is inviting you in through his word through his scripture what the Lord is inviting you in is graciously telling you you're not the object of your faith there is someone that is far greater than you can ever imagine look to him believe in him for if you do you will have life you make a crummy savior because you're from the earth the only thing you can think about and speak about is earthly things you are limited in your understanding you are a finite being and if life hasn't taught you one thing you have no control so look away from yourself and look to him surrender die to self trust him and for us that are believing what does this table remind us of it reminds us of his superiority it reminds us of what he has done for us his body that was broken for us his blood that was shed for us and we get to sit at the table not because of anything we've done we get to sit at the table because of what Christ has done like we bring nothing to the table other than our sin he provides everything for us and so what I want to encourage you as we distribute these elements I want you to think about this question like what area of my life must I decrease so that Christ can increase and then I want you to think about like why is Christ greater why can he increase in my life why can I look to him in faith believing and I will have life like think about those things and then repent confess ask the Lord to help you to decrease so he can increase I want to do something a little different see so many times when we participate at the table we we think about us and what Christ has done for us and in a sense that's a good purpose but what I want to do this morning is I want us to realize the gravity of what we have in our hands 
Obviously, this bread and this, 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 this cup is symbolic. It's not the actual body and blood. It doesn't transfigure when you eat it and dissolve it in your stomach. But it represents. It's a, a physical object lesson that we can see, we can touch it, we can taste it. But sometimes in the symbolism, it loses its significance. We don't really realize what we're holding and what we're eating and what we're drinking. And so what I want us to do is really realize the significance of this and whose body we're holding and whose blood we're drinking in a sense. I want to read for us Colossians 1 verse 15 to 21 and as I'm reading it maybe close your eyes if you want to and really reflect on the words of who this Jesus is who you're eating his body and drinking his blood as we look at the supremacy Colossians 1 verse 15 says he's the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on heaven or things in earth, and to make peace through his bloodshed on the cross. This is his body we're eating. Eat it in remembrance of him. This is his blood that we're drinking, the new covenant we have. Drink it in remembrance of him. Our Lord Jesus, You are far more superior than we can ever imagine. You're far more superior than our minds could ever comprehend. All that we have, our very existence, belongs to you. Not only do you give us life, but you sustain our lives. You've been before all things And you're over all things. And you hold all things together. Lord, may we look to you in all. And as you increase, may we decrease. May we die to self. May we surrender our rights, our privileges to you. For we have nothing. And all that we have comes from you. And all that we are is in you. Lord, may we never take that for granted. 
May we constantly look to you so that we may have life in your name. We thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory and all the honor. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Let's stand, let's worship.